0: Welcome to the Wilfred Podcast. Here you'll expand your knowledge and understanding on a wide range of business, entrepreneurial, and self development skills in just 30 minutes or less. I'm your host, Grant Kitchingman. Introducing the Wilfred Podcast. to through 2, episode 2. Thanks for joining me. I know how lucky I am to have you here and I appreciate it more than I can describe. I'll continue to progress as a presenter as well as improving my content and editing skills. Hopefully that's reason enough to convince you all to stick around, at least for a little while. As always, please feel free to leave a comment, rate the podcast five stars and press the Notorious follow button so you don't miss another episode. Not a bad Bruce Buffer, right? I thought it was pretty good. Oh, don't want to subscribe, eh? Then here, have a whole carton of cigarettes. Settle down, I'm a podcaster, not an impressionist. David Leslie Koch was born on the 7th of March 1956 in Adelaide, South Australia. He began his professional career as a financial journalist, writing for several different publications, before eventually moving to television. Since this move, he has retained the host of Seven Network Sunrise for over 20 years, sharing his financial knowledge and, on occasion, a couple of chuckles. In this time, he has written the book of the week, Koshy's 11-Step Money Plan for a Better Life. This book has received, uh, mixed reviews, let's say, with some stating that it borrows closely from Scott Pape's barefoot investor. 11-Step Money Plan has an overall rating of 3.5 stars on Amazon and 3.2 stars on Goodreads. As opposed to Barefoot's 4.8 stars on Amazon and 4.4 stars on Goodreads, at the time of this episode's publication. Regardless, I would be remiss to say that I took nothing away from Koshy's 11 step brainchild. In fact, I would be flat out lying, which I simply do not do. Unless someone asked me if I wasted my money to watch Suicide Squad and Batman vs. Superman in cinemas. Great films, both of them. <laughs> Before we move on, is it just me or does Koshi remind you of a combination of Professor Farnsworth and Kermit the Frog? Good news, everyone! Hey ho, Kermit the Frog here. Just a little Aussie banter before we start. In case this is the first time you're joining us, I deconstruct a new book every week by reading, highlighting, reflecting upon, and writing a script to do so, all of which is done within one week. Not only that, but you can also listen to each episode in the same amount of time it takes you get to work in the morning. As always, I have divided the content from this book into three equal sections. These will include Part 1, Habits, Part 2, Families, and Part 3, Tax, Super, and Housing. Without further ado, let's jump into the content. Part 1, Habits Always have enough confidence in yourself to give anything a go but also have enough confidence, if it doesn't work out, to go and do something else. Kochi poses an interesting idea that rich people share commonalities, most notably in the habits they possess. According to David, the habits of rich people include They create wealth They take smart risks, but they do their homework And they're not afraid of failure They're frugal They work hard, really hard And they drive a hard bargain Finally, they keep their feet on the ground, which basically means they stay down to earth. Some of these seem obvious, but how many of us can say that we possess all of these traits? Well, I won't speak for you, but I know I don't. Self-reflection is one of the most powerful and important forms of feedback. This is because it allows one to look inward and find faults or shortcomings, which is the first step towards self-improvement. For myself, I believe I am confident creating wealth and doing my homework, I'm frugal where I should be, but generous where I can be, I work hard, drive a hard bargain, and believe that I'm fairly down to earth. However, I also believe that I can take more calculated risks, be less afraid of failure, and be less critical in most aspects of my life. What I'd like to highlight from this is that, until such thoughts are placed in front of us, we are not in the best position to reflect upon ourselves and therefore take the first steps towards improving the most critical aspects of our lives. One of the aspects we may seek to improve is our willingness to discuss our financial philosophy or goals with our partner. Sometimes it can be difficult to get on the same page as our spouse when it comes to money, the reasons for which are simpler to explain than they are to discuss. Money is not an easy topic to discuss. In fact, most times it's downright uncomfortable especially if one or both are in over their heads financially. This can obviously cause friction, discomfort, or even arguments if the topic is not skated around, which in itself is not healthy. But money is something which we must all discuss at some point in the relationship, so the sooner all the cards are out on the table, the better. Koshi coins a term, financial infidelity, which basically means either lying or otherwise hiding or withholding one's spending habits from their spouse. This can only end poorly. Like in all aspects of a healthy relationship, honesty is the best policy. Here are Koshi's healthy financial habits of couples. They have no money secrets. They talk a lot about money. They set specific goals. They divide up responsibilities. They protect what they have. They plan for the unthinkable. They accept they are different and never judge. They live within their means. They set strong ground rules. And most importantly, they have fun. I'll round out the first part by sharing some little tidbits straight from the Koshy's mouth, which I believe are definitely worth sharing. The first is, don't live beyond your means. This is one of the most shared pieces of financial advice from authors within the genre, and for good reason. Living beyond your means basically translates to overspending relative to your requirements or what you can afford. Both of course are negative, as they heavily diminish the amount of money you can save and therefore contribute to your future, through the purchase of assets, superannuation, shares or otherwise. As David states, if you're careful with the little financial decisions, the benefits will add up. This of course directly relates to savings. To which Cauchy also states, it's all about discipline. Put a little away regularly and start as early as you can. This, of course, is due to the power of compound interest, which will supercharge your savings, allowing your money to grow exponentially over time. The same can be said for placing some money away into an exchange traded fund or an ETF. The sooner you start and the more disciplined you are with investing over a greater period of time, the more your money will grow, again thanks to the power of compound interest. Koshy states further, slow steady returns, and the magic of compounding will always succeed. Due to the fact that I'm not a professional, I cannot recommend any ETFs to invest in, but I can say that I myself am invested with Vanguard, who have holistically low fees relative to other providers. Next, property, which I will discuss further in part 3. It's tricky, expensive, risky, and has a multitude of considerations, which many gurus underplay. Yet, thankfully, Koshi does not, stating property success is all about price, position, and gearing. Buy in an attractive area, do your homework to establish the right place, and do not borrow too much. All sound advice. I will simply add that there's a reason that the old adage of location, location, location has stood the test of time. Yes, as stated, there's a multitude of other considerations, but I believe that this is the best place to start. If a property checks all the other boxes, but not location, I personally won't consider buying. For many, even those who have only just started looking into property, negative gearing will be something you will have heard on the grapevine. For those unaware, negative gearing is defined as where the expenses of owning and managing an income-producing investment, such as a property, are greater than the income earned from it. Australian government, the treasury, no date. Despite all the hype, David states that, unless you're in the top tax bracket, negative gearing really isn't worth the risk. There's nothing wrong with positive gearing. Of course, there are tax benefits associated with a negatively geared property, however, these simply do not outweigh the risks associated with owning the property, especially given the current interest rates. Lastly, adaptability. In an ever-changing world, this is of the utmost importance, not just in personal finance, but in all aspects of our lives. Quote, You need to be able to recognise when things aren't working and adapt accordingly. This of course speaks to my point at the top. Self-reflection is one of the most important and equally impactful traits the individual may possess. Part 2 Families Research has calculated that raising two children to adulthood cost $500,000 to $1,000,000 depending on your income, housing, education choices, and lifestyle. Yep, that's right. Shock to absolutely no one, raising a family is expensive. Who would have thought paying for at least one more person's food, bedding, clothes, toys, and poop catches would be pricier? Okay, okay, this isn't mind-blowing information, right? But the cosh actually provides what I believe to be quality advice, given though I don't have children myself. Perhaps at the very least, this will simply confirm the thoughts you already had regarding the topic. Isn't that a start, at least? David states that the costs when adding to your family will likely include maternity clothes, baby clothes and nappies, bottles and formula, bedding, so cot, mattress, sheets and blankets, and equipment that is, change table, car seat, and pram. Again, while this may be obvious to some, unless these costs are listed, perhaps you are unknowingly underplaying their prices. Simple mathematics will confirm this. As stated earlier, the average cost of raising a child to adulthood ranges between $500,000 and $1,000,000. If we divide each of these figures by 18, the age of legal adulthood in Australia, we have a cost of $27,777 and $55,555 per annum. Is this a yearly cost you can afford? If the answer is currently no, here are some financial steps once you decide to have children, as Koshy puts it. Budget for a more modest lifestyle. Review your insurances, ensure there's adequate life, income protection, trauma, health and home insurance to protect your family. Get your estate in order, update your will and name a guardian for your child, build an emergency fund, ideally six months worth of living expenses, and lastly, set up a savings program. Rather than baby's toys or bibs for their early birthdays, you can ask for your family to chip into their little future fund instead. The steps above will place you and your young family in the position to not only make more money, but also ensure that you are not backed into the corner of financial hardship. Even after you're gone, the effects will still positively impact the lives of your children, and isn't that the goal? Importantly, many young mothers may not be aware of the important prerequisite that the holder of private health insurance must bear in mind that to use private health insurance for pregnancy and childbirth, you need to have already been in the fund for 12 months. This, along with the fact that providers will charge you a premium for every year over the age of 30, one isn't left with many options. I would recommend the following. If you are a high income earner, or approaching the age of 30, at least start researching private health. Additionally, as another bonus, if you hold private health insurance, you will not be required to pay the Medicare levy surcharge come tax time, which will reduce your liabilities by thousands of dollars. It is said that it is best to retain your sense of curiosity and eagerness to learn and improve. Part of this is realising that you, that is, the royal you, do not know everything. It is therefore important to pick the brains of those who you know have previous experience in whatever it is you will soon be experiencing. An example of this is, quote, If you have friends who have recently started a family, ask them about the costs they have incurred, and especially any surprises. They have already paid the bills and done the darn thing, so why wonder when you can know? If you ask a bunch of people, then collate the information, you will have a greatly diversified understanding of what to expect. They will also be able to give you an idea of must-haves and wish-we-didn't-buys, saving you the post-nut, <coughs> I mean post-purchased, depression. So what happens when the little rascal or rascals are born, raised, and now starting to grasp the concept of money? Well, David provides some advice on this too, sharing what he recommends discussing and what not to discuss. What to share with your children about money. Setting goals. Paying bills. Making good consumer choices everyday financial experiences, and making charitable donations. What not to share? How much you earn? Your level of debt, investments, and wills and life insurance. Pretty simple there, right? Well, here's a little more. There will come a time where the Rugrats start to ask for an allowance. Koshi also shares some recommendations with regards to pocket money, or what he coins, pocket money rules. They must have a savings plan teach them how to budget, show them the value of money, encourage a part-time job as soon as they're old enough, and give them a sense of community. Speaking from experience as a teacher, not as a parent, this is the best advice within the book's pages, in my opinion. In my experience, the most well-adjusted children are those which have a strong respect and appreciation of and for money. Entitled little brats don't appreciate money because they don't respect its value and they don't respect its value because they haven't been taught to. They also spit such remarks as, I don't care, I didn't pay for it. This unfortunately also translates to failing to save, invest, and purchase assets in the future. There is no room to teach financial literacy in schools, due to stringent curriculum requirements, placing greater emphasis on the need for parents to educate their children on the matter, especially if they want their offspring to succeed in the future, which most do, or at least should. Granted, money doesn't buy happiness, but in reality, it does pay for electricity and gas to keep and cook food and the food itself, the mortgage to keep the roof over their head, water to drink and wash away the day, and so much more. Those students who have a strong understanding, appreciation and respect for money define the term stark contrast. They have been taught to save for the future, whether it be for an expensive item, a trip overseas or their future education, the power of compound interest, donations, and philanthropy. Again, they respect money and the power it holds. They appreciate the fact that the money was first earned by you through your salary, that money was then taxed, and then you have rewarded their time or labor with a portion, not that they were entitled to it. Part three, tax, super, and mortgages. For most Australians, superannuation is their second biggest asset after their home. Let's start with everyone's favourite, taxation. Nobody likes paying taxes to the man. And while you should never lie on a tax return, you should not pay any more tax than you need to either. Equally, if your professional allows you to claim certain items and or dress on tax, you are entitled to do so. Unlike Koshi, I am not a financial professional and as such, I refuse and am not permitted to provide any specific financial recommendations. However, what I can tell you is that sound financial advice is worth its weight in gold. Not only that, but you can also claim the cost of this next financial year. I can also tell you that the Australian Taxation Office website provides specific yet widely applicable advice for certain professions, which is a great resource to determine what you can and cannot claim. Simply google occupation and industry specific guides, then click the hyperlink which matches your profession. Alright, back to Koshy, here are David's 10 tax commandments. 1. Split your income. Put all income producing investments in the name of the spouse in the lower income bracket. 2. Have your tax adjusted. 3. Consider your self-education expenses. You can claim a tax deduction for the cost of self-education. Provided is related to your income earning activities. 4. Keep accurate records. The ATO computers will put a red flag next to you if you're out of step with the others. 5. Delay income until next financial year. Delay receiving things like investment income, dividends, money from a side hustle or contract work until July. 6. Top up your superannuation. Pre-tax super contributions up to $25,000 a year. Reduce your taxable income. After tax contributions up to $100,000 a year are also worthwhile because returns are taxed at a maximum of 15%, not your regular income tax rate. 7. Offset capital gains with losses. If you've made some big profit on one investment, sell some of your disasters. You can then offset your losses from the dogs against the profits from the winners and cut your capital gains tax. 8. Prepay eligible expenses. Investment property owners should also be getting those maintenance jobs done and paid for, now to be claimed in next year's return. 9. Work out any negative gearing implications. Negative gearing works best at a time of high income tax rates, high inflation and high interest rates. That's not to say don't borrow to invest, but do it because of the investment potential, not just for tax reasons. And lastly 10. Claim work-related expenses. You must keep receipts and the expenses must directly relate to earning your income. Again, all of these are direct quotes from Koshy. Next up, superannuation or super. This will be quite a short inclusion as I've talked at length on the topic in past episodes, most notably episode 9, The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape. I would very much recommend listening to that episode if you haven't done so yet, not only because the episode was solid, but mostly because it is by none the most beneficial book in the genre, in my humble opinion. If you think I'm just blowing smoke up papes clacker, I will again refer you to the ratings. Regardless, many financial professionals recommend upping your super contributions to at least 12%, while Scott recommends 15%. Even though experts cannot agree on the number, what the majority do agree on is that 9.5% placed in super is simply not enough. Some might argue that they cannot afford to do this, that they are only just scraping by, living week to week as it is. But believe me, After the first few pays, you'll rejig your finances and after that, it won't bother you. More solemnly, it is also worth noting, as David states, if you don't make a beneficiary nomination, your super fund will decide how your account is distributed in the event of your death, so ensure you nominate where you'd like it to go. Most providers will allow you to do this once logged into your online account, and usually only takes only 5 minutes or so to set up. It goes without saying that this spent time is time well spent and ensures that your money is not used to pay off some super big wigs merc. Kidding, well, you know, maybe not, who knows. Moving on to home loans, a scary topic for many, and will unquestionably be the biggest transaction for most Australians. So, it goes without saying that this purchase should take the most thought, consideration, deliberation, pronunciation, approximation, indoctrination, emancipation, <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that. Once the individual has chosen their property, and gone through that lively adventure of first viewing, falling in love, offers, acceptance, conditional, person building, paying way too much money, patiently waiting, unconditional, patiently waiting again, and finally settling. Whew. You now have a mortgage to deal with. Yay. See you later, money. Luckily, the Kosh has some recommendations for the reader to tame that home loan beast, as he puts it. 1. Increase the frequency of your repayments. If you're making monthly payments, change them to fortnightly. If you make them fortnightly, change them to weekly. 2. Keep repayments constant when interest rates fall. 3. Budget for an extra $100 per month. If you can rustle up an extra $100, the impact is huge. 4. Ask your financer for a better deal. And lastly, 5. Look around for a better deal and use that as a bargaining chip with your current financer. But wait, I haven't even purchased a house yet. Not only that, I suck at negotiating. So how am I supposed to secure a good deal? Good question, but no need to stress, big horse. Koshi also provides some good tips on the negotiation process. Trust me, this advice will turn you into a more powerful negotiator than Samuel L. Jackson. These are applicable not only to property, but to all aspects of life including but not limited to the purchase of a vehicle. Be private. Take them aside and keep the conversation between the two of you. Be friendly. A low-key friendly customer with lots of charm, sets a great mood and shows they're willing to work with the salesperson for a deal that will work for both. Give them an incentive to bargain with you. Simply stating that you always try to support local businesses when you can goes a long way. Don't be so blunt with your questions. You want to engage them, appeal to their sense of fairness and compassion. Show you're smart. You want to come across as an educated, qualified buyer, because in a salesperson's mind, that will make you a customer that's ready to buy now. Do your research. You and the salesperson will know what a fair price is. Silence is golden. Try those silent pauses out. You'll be amazed by their impact. And lastly, understand the product cycle. Car sellers, for example, have monthly targets. So by the end of the month, rather than the beginning. How you feel now? Powerful? Try to use your powers for good, huh? Not evil. Well, that's it for this episode of Wilfred. What I learned from reading Kosh's 11-Step Money Plan for a Better Life by David Kosh, An Educational Discourse. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For those of you tuning in for the first time, every week I read and highlight a new finance or self-improvement book, write a script, record, and release a new episode of Wilfred. I focus on releasing a condensed yet detailed breakdown of the book so you don't have to read it yourself. You can get a fair summary of the book for free in the time it takes you to get to work. That's my motivation and reasoning behind releasing this podcast. If you enjoy it and would like to give back, all I ask is that you rate the pod five stars and if you like, leave a cute little comment and follow the podcast. This will ensure that you don't miss another episode of the pod and full disclosure will help me a bunch in growing my platform. Wherever you choose to consume this content on Spotify or elsewhere, thanks so much for your support. I hope this is extended to my next one. Until next time, stay driven. a guy on his wedding day. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye, Mom. Goodbye, Dad. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye, free time. Farewell, sex. So long, golf on TV. I'll miss you, privacy. Goodbye, being honest about how many beers I've had. Nice knowing you, my own choices. See you later, money!